I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, listeners. Since you can't come to the London Review Bookshop at the moment to enjoy our events, we're bringing them to you at home. While we're closed, our new podcast episodes will feature guests who you might, under better circumstances, have been listening to live in Berry Place, as well as previously unreleased gems from our archives. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. Hi, my name is Mary Mount and I am a publisher of Viking Books and I'm delighted to be talking today to Nikita Lalwani, best-selling author, prize-winning author, and this is her third novel. It's called You People, and it was described by Kamala Shamsi as an exceptional novel about the Britain we live in, even if we choose not to see it. You People was published earlier this month. I wanted to start off this conversation just talking about how you write about the city. This is one of the best books about London I've read in recent years, and specifically, as Kamala Shamsi put it, It's about the London we don't often see or look deeply at. Can you talk about what drew you to this world? Well, I'm definitely interested in this idea of people living in the interstitial spaces of an iconic city like London. I remember reading uh, the writer Mavis Gallant when I was writing the book at the start and the short stories that she set in Paris which have these holes cut through the fabric of Paris so that you can peer inside and see subcultures, configurations of class and belonging. I was interested in it mainly because the idea of being hidden is all dependent upon who's doing the looking. So people who are considered hidden or people who a reader might might otherwise not have chosen to know or understand are not hidden to themselves. So the restaurant in the book is a place where anyone can go and there's a kind of equality or parity of access. So anyone can attend the restaurant in the book and be seen in a sense. And that idea I found exciting, this idea that there would be a place where you could go in a city like London and whether temporarily or for a little longer have a sense of belonging, whatever your background, nationality, class or any other of the other markers of identity that you might normally have for a character in a book. 
I mean, that's actually that I should sort of explain that the, the heart of the novel is a very ordinary pizzeria that's familiar to anybody on any high street in, in any city in Britain. But the the interesting thing about it is that the none of the none of the chefs are Italian. Um, they're all um, Sri Lankan, and uh, the proprietor is this fantastic sort of Solomon type character called Tuli, who runs a restaurant and again is like the sort of proprietor you might see in any in any high street chain. But he has a very sort of peculiar or specific effect on his staff and also on the people passing by on the street. He's a very kind of morally awkward character in a way that I suppose all of us are in some ways and has tremendous power. Do you want to talk about the idea of this this I this this man who's a kind of Robin Hood figure to to the people working for him? Yeah, I knew a character who was a bit like Julie, who worked in a restaurant and who was very confident in his moral choices. And I found that really fascinating and quite inspiring. I think I came away from knowing him with this feeling that altruism or the kind of altruism that he was interested in was kind of contagious. So if you're around it, then you might be able to absorb it in some way. But also this idea that altruism and selfishness can be linked and that that's okay, possibly, so long as the outcome is of use. So this utilitarian feel to what he was doing. So the character in the book, Julie, runs a kind of Solomon's Court where people can come and tell their stories, stories of need. And based on that, he would decide in the book whether or not a loan might be issued at 0%, 50% or 100% interest or be a gift with no need for return. So huge moral decisions being made here. And I found that very exciting in the person that I knew because he had a lot of impact on the community around him near the restaurant where he was working. But I also was interested in it novelistically because there's a lot of hubris in making decisions about who gets helped. So the idea of love thy neighbour is a quite there's quite a big philosophical problem within that idea if there aren't enough resources to go around. So what is this preferential system of loving thy neighbour that someone like that is employing? And what is the hubris in that? What happens if you make a decision that goes wrong, as invariably any human being is capable of doing. And how does that unfold in a kind of thriller-like way, I guess, in the book? Yeah, because it's very, it's, it's very good the way you, you play with the reader in the book. There's a character in the, in the novel who, who appeals to help from, from Thule, and he may or may not have hit his wife. And there are characters throughout who have these flaws, and you as the reader never know necessarily what they've done in the same way that really you can never completely know in a court of law or you can never That's you can right. never make a completely um, fail-safe judgment. And as a reader, I don't. I, in the end, I didn't know whether which way I would have gone, particularly in the case of the, that guy, because he, ne- he desperately needed help. On the one hand, he was very much in need of help. And on the other hand, you felt, is it right to give him that help? And I suppose... The novel is a, a lot of it is about judging and and who you who gets to judge and who who gets to be judged and the title. Some people have found the title quite kind of what's the word direct. The the title of you people and it plays in two different ways in the book. And I wondered what 
what drew you to that title and why that title was so important to the to the sort of point of the book? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of ambiguity around transgression with the character who's hit his wife. There are other characters in the book who have behaved in a way that some might deem correct and some might deem incorrect, that it's not a correct way to conduct yourself in a just society. And the idea of breaking the law is very important in the book. Is it okay to break the law if you're a government that's killing its own people? Is that breaking the law? Or is is it breaking the law to help someone seek asylum in a certain way if it involves untruths, if the outcome is one of benefit? You people as a title is sort of linked to that because it's in a, a direct address for the reader. Initially, there's this idea of self and other. You know, who who are the you people? Is the reader being othered or is the reader involved? Is the reader saying it to the people in the book? But it's also a kind of transgression, that sort of intimacy. There's something really intimate in pointing the finger and saying you people. And in the book, you people is quite an affectionate term at the start. Don't you people do the following? And, and then it's a kind of hate speech towards the end when it resurfaces. So I like the blunt sort of imperative in the title, you people. And the fact that it was something that was turning over at the centre of the machine of the book, really, as I was writing it. It's funny how you come up with a title. It wasn't the working title of the book. And then it was the title that emerged at the end, probably when the conundrum of the book was closer to being solved in my mind. Yeah. It's interesting how you decided to set the novel not in the very immediate past, not in the kind of cauldron of of Brexit, but was the sort of the kind of questions about judgment and who gets to be here and who gets and who gets to decide and was that one of the that whole idea of belonging was the recent political situation was that a prompt in the in the beginnings of this book yeah it's interesting as i was writing it and the climate seemed to be changing and yet it was still the same and it still con- seemed to contain reverberations of that which has passed i mean if you look back to W.H. Auden's poem, Refugee Blues, say this city has 10 million souls, some are living in mansions, some are living in holes, yet there's no place for us, my dear, there's no place for us. In 1939, everything seemed to be a permutation of past as I was watching it unfold, and yet the book is set in a particular time to do with an influx of refugees from the Sri Lankan war in the early noughties is when it's set. So I think that London in the book is a very welcoming and also hostile place that the two coexist. And the restaurant is also like that. So it can be a place where there are people who are legal EU immigrants and those who are not legal yet and hope to be legal, who are working in the kitchen in the back, who are from Sri Lanka. And there's a bleed through from front to back. But equally, it's hostile because the police turn up, there are immigration raids, There's a kind of cutthroat quality to survival on a street where there are so many different establishments, Who, which establishment will get the customers. So I think for me, it feels like there's a lot of resonance by looking at the recent past and what we're going through right now. Yeah. And and I suppose it's that... As you say, it you know you can you can pick any period and see the the resonance you know and obviously in great fiction that is that's what 
great writers do. And I was wondering about when I was reading the book and working on it with you, there's been lots of conversation. Well, there's always conversation about the whole idea about writing about real events and the difficulty of writing about very recent political events and, and indeed political trauma. And I was thinking about, obviously, there's the, there's the controversy about American dirt, but I was thinking about that your first two novels, one is set in, in Cardiff about a young girl who was a maths prodigy, and the second one is about a documentary maker going to a, a, an open prison in India. But this is your most sort of immediately political and deals with very real, specifically real traumatic events of the Sri Lankan civil war. I wonder what you felt about writing about war, recent war in fiction, and how you know whether you had trouble with that or or how you dealt with transforming into a fictional landscape. I think that um, in in writing any book, especially one that contains trauma, that would be the sort of sharp edge of it. You're always wondering about how to get it right, and if you think about that for too long, it can ruin the book. And if you don't think about it enough, it can ruin the book. So certainly when I was looking into things like torture and talking to Freedom From Torture, the organisation, I knew that my usual method of research, which would be, I come from a documentary background and I still use the same sort of intrusive fireism when writing and that sort of up-close obsession with detail that I would have when I was filming Certainly, I knew that that wasn't going to work because interviewing someone who's experienced torture will bring it back, most likely, um, in an experiential way. And so that idea of the ethics of writing a book in which there is trauma, as you put it, political trauma, personal trauma, there's a lot of physical trauma that is running in this contiguous way with the emotional trauma of the book. It's it's a very uh, audacious thing to do and if you think about putting yourself in someone else's shoes too much mm. you just can't do it so I think that it's this there's this balance in the different times of writing where you are sometimes writing without care on purpose and without much concern for ethics and then it's important to stand back and look at what you've done you can't just say well this just all yeah. poured out of me and I haven't I just yeah. sort of closed my eyes and that's what happened you have to take responsibility for it. Writing is a political act, I think, whatever you're writing about, because especially when you reach the end of a book, something about authorial yeah. intention is usually revealed. So I think it's important to sort of stand up and take that into account and be responsible for it. So there's a mixture of research and imagination at play, but I think that it's important to do it. It's important to try and animate these stories so that we don't just have a certain kind of story being told about, for example, the immigrant or refugee experience, so that there are multiple stories at play. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the London Review Bookshop podcast. You can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. What I found very interesting is a lot of fiction that I've encountered finds it very difficult to balance what can be described as kind of big events, sort of terrible civil war, uh, the suffering of of an individual in that context with what would be, seem to be smaller trauma or, or, or smaller experiences, which is individuals may suffer within a domestic environment. So you have this wonderful combination of characters in the heart of the novel. The two people who depend on, on the proprietor, on Thule, are a young mixed-race Welsh girl called Nia and the Sri Lankan uh, refugee Shan. Is it Shan or Shan? Shan. Sean is how I'd say it, but Sean is another way to say it too. Yeah, and I think what what is interesting is is how you pull off the idea that even though Nia is just fleeing a drunken hippie mother who's made her life an absolute car crash, but her experience is as compelling and as rich, if that's the right word as Shan's experience is. And I think I wondered how how difficult that was to do because it could have been of you know, it could have it could have reflected very badly on on Nia in a way. Yeah, that's the something that was interesting as I was writing it, because I didn't initially write it from two points of view. I first off tr- started trying to write it from the Thule point of view, the godfather or the godlike figure at the heart of the book. And then I realized very quickly that his mystery was being dissipated as I wrote and I was writing it to understand him because I was in his head. So I split the narrative between Nia and Sean and Nia, I think, very quickly realises that her experience of struggle against economic hardship is not atypical and not linked to a racial or a cultural background setup. And I think that that started to emerge organically, really, as she turns up and becomes fascinated with Thule and is engaged with him in a way that is a sort of romantic interest, but it's also a desire to be him, his sort of grandiose benevolence and the fact that he's actually 
having a positive impact on the world rather than looking within to what she calls the hidden pockets of the self. This idea of looking outward is very appealing for her. And juxtaposed with Shan, the Sri Lankan cook who's fleeing the war, juxtaposed with his concerns, he's constantly trying for a family reunion, trying to find his wife and his child. They have a lot in common in terms of trying to get a sense of family going, to coin a phrase more in common. Essentially, that's what really connects them. And there's a really brilliant scene where Nia's had a bit of a rough night and Shan cooks for her. And it's just such a touching scene where you realise that the, the two of them are just, they just want to find some solace and comfort. And in the end, what's terrific is in their own sort of very complicated way, they find it. When you're reading the novel, you just don't know how it's going to go. And there's a terrifying section when Shan is desperately trying to find his wife and child and find out whether they're still alive and and where they are. And he makes these connections through terrible people in order to do so. And there's a very dramatic scene where you think he may well be reunited. So your sort of heart is in your mouth throughout most of the second half of the novel. And then you have the, the ending, and I won't give it away, but it, it is a, what I would describe as sort of tentatively optimistic. It's completely real, but it, there is a sense that, that these people are going to be okay. Thank God. Is that how you always saw it? And is that a sort of, do you think that's not wishing to kind of psychoanalyze you, but do you think that's a sort of way in which you look upon generally this situation? Yeah, I think you're right that um, the, the ending could have gone a number of different ways. And I think that endings are very important, as I was saying, that an ending can really make you think about the entire book in a different way. It can make you throw a book against the wall if an ending doesn't feel like it works with what you've read or the worldview of what you've read or the character progression or an act of God at the end of a book can often be infuriating. It has to emerge, I think, from something that makes sense in the universe the book, even if there is an act of God. So I think for me, there is an optimism in the ending, even though it's not a neat ending and everyone isn't put back together again in this jigsaw of contentment. But there's an optimism in the idea of taking agency and the idea that we do have the power as people to connect and to change our fates. And that's why optimistic is right, because obviously sometimes there is so much that is a can function as a kind of manacle around our ability to have choices or to make decisions that any kind of movement is impossible. At the end of this book, there's the chance to reconcile certain problems and other things will need work and other things may or may not turn out how you want. But as Thule says when he's confronted by Nia at the end, you know, I make mistakes, but is it better not to intervene? Is it better to just walk on by? Or is it better to intervene and get a lot of it right and sometimes make a mistake? That's, I guess, the conundrum that's still there at the end of the book. But this idea of being able to make a decision and be a- being able to take steps within the confines of the universe that each character finds themselves in, but also the idea of personal responsibility yeah. is there. And I think there's that sense also, which obviously resonates very deeply right now, which is that sense of 
the connection between strangers in a city that because everybody is right up against each other that that actually it's only really these connections this sort of connected humanity that that does get everybody through and I wondered whether that was sort of that that's definitely what is resonating with me from this book um, in this current situation I think yeah you're right you we're seeing all kinds of connections happening in our proximity within immediate walkable distance right now and that's very much what's happening in the book that it's all about the square mile yeah. around the restaurant and the people you might meet in uh, the laundrette the people you might meet in the supermarket in the betting place in the pub and all about their different needs given their different backgrounds and the kind of exuberance of that in a place like London where you're confronted with this variegated striated sense of community and right now we're seeing people move beyond those barriers all the time and helping elders do their shopping and the countless aspects of face-to-face contact that are taking place yes and that sense that actually your local high street is the sort of lifeblood of the entire of your entire universe i mean our, our universe is right now have obviously shrunk and in a way that is the exact sort of thread of what what goes through the novel that the whole world is really concentrated even though these people have come from everywhere they've essentially all now their world consists around one restaurant or one shop one one tube line um you know shan's daily life is essentially getting on the, and the, the repetition in the novel is so beautifully done he sees the same kid going to school every morning as he sets off to go to work and that whole way in which we all do live that that kind of routine life but the way that that has come down to this this one place it's a it's an incredibly sort of beautiful novel for this moment i think well i just want to end by saying thank you very much and thank you to all the lrb listeners and Thanks, Nikita, for your wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And just a reminder that you can order the book discussed in this episode by visiting lrb.me forward slash order. That's lrb.me forward slash order. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.